Hello and welcome to the 10th installment of Soccer Pints, your one-stop shop for all things American soccer. I'm your host, Will Clark. If you aren't familiar, Soccer Pints is an American soccer podcast where we have pointed discussions about U.S. soccer, Americans abroad, Major League Soccer, and many other exciting topics. From time to time, I'll be joined by guest hosts, as well as conduct interviews with some of the biggest influencers in American soccer. Last week, we broke down the U.S. men's national team match against Morocco, who stood out, who underperformed, and ultimately, what takeaways we had from it. We also previewed the second friendly that took place this past Sunday against Uruguay, and as always, we wrapped up with some Q&A and my final thoughts of the week. This week, we will be recapping the performance against Uruguay, and we'll be jumping into the Nations League matches that take place this Friday, June 10th, and next Tuesday, June 14th. In addition, I will give a quick overview of our now-solidified World Cup group stage matches and make my first predictions into how I think we'll fare in those contests. To finish off today's episode, I will give some final thoughts from this week as well. I mentioned last week that I'll be covering Sunday's match against Uruguay from Asheville, North Carolina, so I thought it was only right to feature one of the best breweries for this week's beer feature. And this week's feature needs no introduction. Burial Beer Company has quickly become one of the best breweries in the entire world. It was founded in 2013 and quickly became one of the most popular spots in the city. They offer so many different varieties of beer, but their stout and barrel aging, as well as their collection of IPAs, have become staples of theirs. When my wife and I visit Asheville, Burial's original location at South Slope is our first stop. We visited when they only had a one-barrel system back in 2013 and have already been multiple times this trip with more stops planned as well. It's just too good not to go back time and time again. Plus, they've opened up a second location in Asheville, a spot in downtown Raleigh, and just recently opened up a new tap room in Charlotte's Plaza Midwood area. And if they ever open up shop in Wilmington, you know where you'll find me. And if you know anything about Burial, they have a very unique and eclectic style, both with their artwork and with the names of their beers. There are so many stories that go into it, I'm sure, but I'm always a fan of their releases, and today is no different. As I have an Imperial, New England-style IPA called amalgamated impulses at the temple of thought this is 8.5 percent in alcohol and has a stellar 4.38 rating on untapped i could talk about this one all day and it's one of the best beers i have featured so far and i have had some great ones this one's super juicy just enough dank on it really smooth it's really enjoyable as all of their beers typically are i am sure this won't be the last one i have today or tomorrow or the next day it's that good but before i do that Let's make sure I can get through this episode in one piece. Well, last week we saw the U.S. men dominate Morocco in a very inspiring performance and a 3-0 win. The group was full of confidence heading into their matchup on Sunday night against Uruguay. Uruguay was coming off their own 3-0 victory over Mexico last Thursday too. I was hoping that the U.S. would switch things up and play some of their fresher faces in the squad and let them gain experience, but we ended up seeing a pretty strong lineup once again from Greg Berhalter and his staff. Overall, we lined up in our usual 4-3-3 formation with Sean Johnson getting the starting goal. DeAndre Yedlin was at right back, Joe Scaly at left back, Aaron Long and Walker Zimmerman once again started in the center of defense together. In the midfield, we had Tyler Adams, Eunice Musa, and Weston McKinney, and up top, we had Christian Pulisic, Jesus Ferreira, and Timothy Weah again. Overall, four changes to the group with Matt Turner, Reggie Cannon, Anthony Robinson, and Brennan Aronson Uh, starting on the bench this time. It was a much stronger starting 11 than what I thought we would see, and with Uruguay bringing a pretty strong starting 11 into the match as well, it made for a solid contest. 
Before I go into the full highlights of the match, I want to give a proper shout out to Kansas City for hosting the friendly. Their stadium looked amazing. It's always packed, always a great spot for the national team to play. And it seemed like they wanted to make sure Pulisic's comments were heard from last week as they created a great atmosphere. And that's despite the actual match being rather dull, to be honest. Uruguay absolutely took us to, took it to us in the first 10 plus minutes. The U.S. looked very flat out of the gate. They just seemed lost on their positioning and didn't know how to respond. Scaly seemed to be getting exposed on the left side quite a bit, but it could have just been our game plan, similarly to how Robinson played more advanced against Morocco. Uruguay just kept attacking on that side time and time again, and Scaly was overcommitting a lot and seemed a little out of his element early on. DeAndre Yedlin made a great clearance off the line in the 10th minute, but outside of that, he looked like a player whose time with the national team should be about done with. He just looked stale out there, very reactive, and just wasn't that impressive, unfortunately. The quality just wasn't there. Around the 20-minute mark, the U.S. decided to play their game a bit more, and Ferreira actually had two great chances back-to-back. He's always in great spots, but he has to start putting some of these chances away. He makes great runs off the ball to create space for others, and that's a huge part of why he can play more of that false nine striker role with this group. But again, you have to capitalize on your chances and score goals. So around halfway through the first half, I thought Uruguay definitely led on the front foot, but then the U.S. got it together and it became a much more even contest. I had quite a few observations about the team, too. I thought Zimmerman was once again positioning himself well. He was distributing well. And I think at this point, he has to be considered a lock to start for this team at the World Cup. Wea is still the real deal on that right wing spot as well. He's just got something different than anyone else. The people calling for him to play in a number nine role don't realize that's not the position he's going to do the most damage in. He's going to expose a lot of left backs if he keeps this form up. And Pulisic, once again, showed his worth. He is the best player making runs off the ball. He does so many little things that you don't notice at first glance. He is always in a spot for his teammates to find him, and you can tell he wants the ball. He wants to get others involved, and his vision on the field is just so good. I thought, looking in the midfield, Adams was covering so much space. I was completely wrong with my thinking during the first friendly. He just covers for everyone else on the field. He is a workhorse player. Nothing spectacular specifically on the day, but he was absolutely solid. And then there was Musa, who was just quietly so strong in the middle for the second straight match. He was putting in great little sequences for plays, and it's another connection for him from the back to the middle to the forwards, and we've just lacked that for quite some time. I like how Adams is more the defensive midfield option for the U.S., and Musa gives us a bit of both defense and offense when needed, but enough support to the rest of the attacking group to be able to make their runs, to be creative, and know that he's going to be there for coverage for them if they're out of position. Overall, for the first half, we had a core group of guys working together, which is exactly what we wanted to get out of these matches, and there is some solid chemistry there. We haven't seen that in a long time out of this group. They all seem to like each other, enjoy playing together, and want to be playing. You can always tell when players truly have that passion and fight for one another, and the camaraderie within this team seems to be very strong at the moment. Moving into the second half, Greg again planned three changes, and this time we saw Eric Palmer Brown come on for long, Paul Areola for Wea, and Aronson for McKinney. And I know 45 minutes isn't a lot of time, especially considering both teams made wholesale changes throughout the half, but I thought Palmer Brown looked good. I thought him and Zimmerman looked fine together. 
Obviously, not enough for a full evaluation from me, but a decent pairing. Aronson is just ridiculously good. He's always getting stuck into challenges, always a pest for opponents, always outworking others. I keep saying it, but it is going to be so difficult to Greg to figure out how to get all of these guys minutes. And we're going to leave someone out of the starting lineup from these following players. Pulisic, Weah, McKinney, Aronson, Musa, Adams, Gio Reyna, Luca De La Torre. Add in a striker like Ferreira or Haji Wright or maybe Ricardo Pepe if he can find form again. That's a lot of talented individuals there and only about six to seven spots. And speaking of Wright, he subbed on for Ferreira at the 60th minute. At the same time, Anthony Robinson came on for Yedlin, allowing Scaly to switch over to his natural right back spot. Uruguay also used this moment to make their own subs and put on an even stronger team. Not to say Uruguay started with a B team, but there are a lot of talent, or there was a lot of talent on their bench that came on with 30 minutes left in the match. And immediately after the introduction of those subs, Sean Johnson was forced into a point blank save in the 63rd, 63rd minute. A fantastic effort from Johnson. One of the funniest things I saw all weekend was the complaints that people were making about Johnson being in gold for this contest. Honestly, it really shouldn't matter who the third string goalkeeper is at the World Cup. It shouldn't. And I texted a friend after the match and said, Johnson solidified himself as the U.S.'s third, fourth, fifth, sixth string option. Take your choice here. Hopefully, none of them ever have to play if Turner and Stefan are healthy. But good on Johnson and his few moments of being able to make saves and keep a clean sheet for the squad. So at this point in the match, now halfway through the second half, I felt it had been a very even game. Not a ton of possession for the U.S., not a ton of chances for Uruguay, just a pretty even friendly. And as I was making this observation, Uruguay accidentally made a seventh sub in the match when you were only allowed six changes. So, an odd moment for the officials in just a strange situation. Ultimately, they were allowed to keep the, the, keep the change on the field, given the friendly nature of the match, but I had never seen that happen before. A few more thoughts on the remainder of the match. There were really no real attacking chances for the U.S. It felt like the matches that we're used to, where we have no true way to connect a final pass in the final third, despite having some creative presences on the pitch. We were just never able to break through. We also had the same stupid corner kicks from the other night. Overhit to the back post again and again and again. It was almost too obvious every time. De La Torre came on for the final seven minutes for Musa, and while it was a brief cameo for him, he's still the real deal too. He's got to be a part of the squad in November, and I just mentioned how spots will be hard to come by, but he is so dynamic when he's on the field. Towards the end of the match, we saw some great defending again from Zimmerman. Palmer Brown had gotten beat covering for Robinson, and Zimmerman laid out to block a clear goal-scoring opportunity for Uruguay. But a few moments later, with time winding down, we saw some poor defending too, and the U.S. got extremely lucky when Edison Cavani missed a wide-open tap-in that he somehow pushed just wide of goal. The U.S. truly were fortunate to get the nil-nil draw, but I felt it was a fair performance and a deserved result. Nothing spectacular here, a bit underwhelming, but Uruguay are a talented side, and getting two shutouts in our friendlies is extremely positive. It shows the team have been focused in training and worked hard in the areas that they needed to. 
And I know people will wonder how Haji Wright did, but there just wasn't enough service into him. So it was tough to evaluate, and he just never saw the ball, unfortunately. So a 3-0 win over Morocco and a 0-0 draw with Uruguay to finish off our summer friendlies. I think that's two positive results for us, and we can take a lot away from the squad. I think a lot of the guys solidified themselves into the World Cup ticket list, and there were others that probably should start figuring out other plans for themselves if they don't step it up in the remaining matches we have over the next week, which leads me into the next topic for today. And that's our Nations League matches against Grenada this Friday, June 10th in Austin, Texas, and again, Tuesday, June 14th against El Salvador on the road. And what exactly is the Nations League, you may ask yourself? I ask myself the same question all the time. Simply put, it's a competition for CONCACAF, which is the regional governing body of North America, Central America, and the Caribbean. It was created to mirror the European version of their own Nations League and was really geared towards getting more competitive games in for those countries that don't get many opportunities to play meaningful matches. Every single nation within CONCACAF participates And this is now the second version, as the U.S. won the inaugural Nations League final that was delayed due to COVID last fall. I think I've said this before, but the Nations League is pretty useless for me. I think it actually hurts the U.S. more than it helps, because rather than using the dates to play against better competition, we are forced into playing Grenada and El Salvador. Nothing against either of those two nations, but these matches are not going to help us prepare for the World Cup. Yes, We will be able to integrate some of the newer faces into the squad and hopefully give them some confidence with a nicer result. But if the U.S. didn't win the Nations League, I wouldn't lose sleep over it. It's pretty meaningless in the grand scheme of things. However, we still have to play the matches, so I have to talk about them and give my two cents. I think more than anything, I want us to go into these matches and continue working on our tactics. Work on what we are trying to focus on. And that's being a compact team that controls possession, creates opportunities in the final third, and finishes our chances. Against Grenada this Friday night, it will be a great chance to play some individuals that didn't see many minutes in the two friendlies. And while I know I said we should rest a lot of our main starters and let others gain some experience, I'm also okay if we want to build some confidence and put some goals into the net early and often with the regulars out there. Grenada should give absolutely us no problem and we should win four five six nil i'm not going to try to predict a starting 11 at this point but i would like to see one of ferrera or Wright really have a chance to score some goals strikers need these types of matches to build their confidence and this could be a great opportunity for both of them let's give tillman more minutes continue to let scaly play and learn to grow and i would really love to try out both cameron carter vickers and palmer brown together at the back too Seeing as we then have to travel to a very difficult environment to play in down in El Salvador, it will be good to rest the majority of the squad and play a stronger team on the road. El Salvador beat Grenada 3-1 at home last weekend and are playing each other again Tuesday night, which at this recording had not taken place yet. And while I didn't watch the first match, I did see the highlights and El Salvador thoroughly dominated each match. The U.S. tied El Salvador on the road in World Cup qualifying, so while we should win and perform, Anything can happen on the road in CONCACAF. Being that Grenada match just might be our final home match before the World Cup, I hope we give the fans a great performance and dominate, even if we're playing a weaker lineup. I'll be watching both matches, and we'll provide a recap next week for both as well. 
but I won't spend too much time analyzing or putting much stock into either performance just due to the nature of the competition itself. With that being said, I do think there are valuable opportunities for these fringe players to step up and win a ticket for Qatar. I can assure you that Greg and his team will be looking to see who seizes their moment and who doesn't. Who is going to force Greg into selecting them for the World Cup? I checked to see who hasn't seen any playing time yet this summer, and we've got Ethan Horvath, Christian Roldan, Jordan Morris, and Kellen Acosta. Aside from Acosta, who had a minor knee injury last week, I think those other three guys need to be especially big difference makers if they want to be called back into camp in September when we play two friendlies in Europe. And there are rumors circulating on who exactly those opponents will be. So we should have some real tests there. Either way, the full expectation I do have with these two matches are victory against Grenada and either a win or a draw in El Salvador. We will be playing both again as these are home and away series, but those won't take place until March 2023. So after next week, you won't hear me talk about the Nations League again up until that point. It's going to be all eyes towards the World Cup from this moment on for the men's team. And in saying that, with the final European World Cup playoff match being completed on Sunday afternoon, the final place in the U.S. World Cup group has now been solidified as Wales knocked off Ukraine 1-0 in an extremely emotional match for both countries, obviously for different reasons too. Wales has not been to a World Cup since 1958, so their emotions were through the roof, as for many of their supporters, this will be the first chance they've ever had at seeing their country represented on the biggest stage in the world. For Ukraine, they gave an incredible effort, and unfortunately, if not for a bad own goal deflection into their net that led to Wales's only goal, their dreams were crushed. For a country battling for their own lives in a war with Russia, this team had given their people hope, and they had the support from all around the world pulling for them to move on, but it just wasn't meant to be. So the USA will now face Wales in their first group match on November 21st, followed by England on November 25th, and will wrap up group play against Iran on November 29th. I'm really excited about the result. I personally think we match up much better against the Welsh than the Ukrainians, so from a purely soccer-driven perspective here, it worked in our favor. I think we can get a result against Wales on the first day, and it will be massively important that we do. So, in the way-too-early predictions for the World Cup group stage, I think we knock off Wales 2-0 on the first day. Then I believe we will defeat England 2-1 on the second match day. And finally, in a really intriguing matchup that has a lot of question marks about it, I think the U.S. comes out 1-0 winners against Iran. Dare I say we go undefeated for the first time ever in group play and advance with all nine points to face the runners-up from Group A, which most likely will be Qatar, Ecuador, or Senegal, as I fully expect the Netherlands to win their group. You'll find I'm being very optimistic this time around, and usually I'm a bit more realistic when it comes to predictions, so I'm just having a bit of fun here. But it could happen given the talent and tenacity that this group has. I'm excited to see what happens. Well, that takes us to my final thoughts of the week, and there are a few to share from the American soccer world. First up, news from the U.S. women's national team, and a player I mentioned scored a goal recently in the Women's Champions League final last month, Katarina Macario. She suffered a torn ACL in her final club match of the season for Lyon last Wednesday. Katarina was expected to play a big part for the U.S. women this summer with their own World Cup qualifying preparations. She has featured 17 times for the women's team and has scored eight goals. So, 
Definitely a big loss for the women's team and an unfortunate roadblock for her career. But I wish her the best and a speedy recovery with everything. Next up, I mentioned rumors circulating over who our U.S. men will face in the September international friendly window. So I figured I'd share who I've been hearing up to this point. The September camp will be based in Europe as the largest contingent of this player pool is based over there. And it's just more logical to eliminate travel for the squad if we can have more time to prepare together. The window itself is from the 19th to the 27th of September. So we should be able to secure two quality opponents during that time. It seems to be close to being finalized, but I've heard four different opponents being thrown out there. Qatar has long been rumored but I don't see that one gaining as much steam as the others. I saw Argentina in the news this week as a potential opponent, but I haven't seen a real source mention it, and while I think that it would be a real test for us, I just don't see it happening. The two favorites at the moment seem to be Japan and Saudi Arabia. According to Charles Bohm from MLS Soccer, he announced the talks were quite advanced at this point, and even Greg Berhalter stated after the Uruguay match that it would be against fellow World Cup participants and Asian teams. So that pretty much seems certain to me. Both countries would be a great test for the U.S., and considering we're playing Iran in our group, it makes a lot of sense to pair these together. Either way, it'll be entertaining as these will be the final matches played before the actual World Cup matches start in November. Up next to share is that the transfer window for most leagues should be opened up at this point, and we could start seeing even more individuals changing clubs soon. We have already seen Brendan Aronson complete his move to Leeds United, and we have mentioned a few others who could and should be moving too. After our summer friendlies in these next two Nations League matches, I think several may focus on their next destination, and a few things to be considered are both personal and professional there. Clearly, if you're moving into a new club, you want to make sure you're getting playing time, that you're training at a high level, and you're preparing yourself for the World Cup, or to be able to position yourself for a final roster spot in Qatar. That's the immediate most important thing I think a lot of players need to factor in. From a personal perspective, put yourself in a situation where you'll be happy, where you earn a nice paycheck, and obviously be able to compete for trophies. Sometimes we see moves happen, and then the player just never suits up for the club or gets loaned out to another club, and their situation just deteriorates. So we need to be careful. Ricardo Pepe is an example of this most recently, leaving FC Dallas for Augsburg in the Bundesliga. And while he didn't get loaned out, he saw limited playing time, he scored no goals, and he lost a lot of momentum. He needed a mental break after the season, and he isn't with the U.S. team right now. The adjustment period can be so tough for players, and I am sure Pepe will recover and be strong again with the new campaign starting in August, but the point is, if you make a rash decision, it can hurt your ability to make the World Cup roster. I would love to see a few players make the move as long as they can go into a squad and start and get solid playing time. We already know that John Brooks is out of contract and is looking for a new home. Christian Pulisic keeps being mentioned as a player to leave Chelsea this summer. Tyler Adams continues to be mentioned. Weston McKinney as well. Serginho Dest. I just hope anyone who makes a move is smart about it, especially anyone in Major League Soccer looking to jump across the Atlantic to Europe. It's a difficult transition period for players, and you want your form to be at its peak heading into November. I know it's a bit short-sighted to only be thinking about how the move might impact their World Cup odds as a player, but that's what you dream of playing in. So short-sighted or not, that has to be prioritized right now. Finally, my last non-soccer thought of the week for you. 
I've been in Nashville for a few days now, and we've had the chance to visit several breweries in the area. This is a beer drinker's paradise for anyone who has never visited. It's super family and pet friendly too. Being able to have so many things to do in the area is incredible. Great hikes, great food, great beer, and awesome people too. I will definitely be sharing some of my favorite spots in next week's episode for anyone interested. It's been fun slapping Soccer Pint stickers around town as well. So if you happen to see one, take a picture and send it to me. And if you remember from the first ever episode, I featured Palm City Brewing from Fort Myers, Florida, and their owner, Ryan Bowen. While typically I release these episodes on Fridays, obviously this week is a little earlier, and that's because I get to be joined by Ryan on Wednesday evening and will really be enjoying the brewery scene with him throughout the rest of the week. It should be a great time, and we will get to watch the U.S. Grenada matchup together as well. So that will be cool to get his perspective on soccer and obviously great beer. Well, that's it for today's episode. Another solid result for the U.S. men, and despite drawing the match, I think there were some real positives we can take away from it. There are still a lot of opportunities for this group of players to keep growing and working on their tactics, and these next two matches in the Nations League will allow them to do just that. Next week, I will be recapping the performances of those two matches against Grenada and El Salvador, and I'll be sharing an updated 26-man roster for who deserves a ticket to Qatar after this summer camp is completed. So, thanks again for the continued support and for listening today. Please share any feedback and submit questions directly to me at will.clark at thesoccerpints.com or on social media. I would love to get some fresh perspectives now that we have recorded 10 episodes, so please don't be afraid to reach out and connect with me. Until next time, cheers, my friends.